Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Squadron, the podcast devoted to creating and optimizing a healthy and fulfilling life for first responders all around the world. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm a sergeant for Sheriff's Department in Southern California, and I talk to a variety of experts in a variety of fields on the show looking for those force multipliers that I can apply to my own life. I want to make us all happier, healthier, and safer so we can tackle our challenging careers with energy and focus. This entire podcast is uh, to make myself better. I'm being selfish. Uh, this is all about me. Uh, I am narcissistic, uh, but at least I share or I try to share some of this with you, what I'm learning with you, what works, what doesn't work. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode, including show notes, show notes and links to our guests' information by going to thesquadroom.net. And you can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squadroom if uh, you haven't already, of course. I've uh, pitched this last couple of episodes, but also we have a Facebook group now. If you're on Facebook and you want to interact, you want to do a little bit more one-on-one or, uh, or uh, start a conversation with other listeners, other cops, other people who want to be cops, there's a lot of good discussions, a lot of helpful information in there, and it's a growing group. So you can go to uh, Facebook and search the Squad Room Podcast, and it's a closed group. You have to get accepted, uh, but uh, if you listen to the show and uh, you're in the field or interested in the field or a supporter, don't worry about that. You're in. Uh, it's just to keep out the riffraff and the uh, the spammers and the whatnot so that we can have some honest conversations and all the uh, anti-cop people. Also, uh, many of you have asked how you can support the show, and here it is. Uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash the squadroom, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, you can make a donation to help us cover the expenses of the show and expand the reach and uh, abilities of the show as well. Uh, you select the do- donation amount and any amount that you choose and uh, how long you want to contribute, and it's that easy. And I uh, want to thank uh, some special people who are uh, su- supporters this week, Redmans, uh, Baxter, Claire, Troutman, and um, a new one just came in just a moment ago, Kyle Campbell. So thank you, guys. I uh, appreciate uh, that extra support. It goes a long way towards helping us keep the lights on, so to speak. Got a lot planned uh, over the next couple of months, and it's good to be back behind the microphone and uh, and talking with you, you all. Our guest today is someone, uh, by the time this episode comes out, um, and it's been already a couple of weeks since we've talked, since I'm recording this, um, is somebody who I've, I've kept coming back to this conversation over the last couple of weeks. And I hope that you stay through it if it's not a topic that immediately grabs you. Uh, it's a very buzzwordy uh, topic right now, mindfulness. It's a big deal. Um, it's a big, uh, it was on the cover of Time Magazine, I think the week that I met with uh, Richard Gerling, our guest today, uh, or the week before. And it was on the cover of Newsweek recently, and there's books about it, and I've been reading about it, and it's the thing to do now. But uh, Richard, Richard's a lieutenant for the Hillsborough, Oregon Police Department, right outside Portland. Um, and he fell into a mindfulness um, uh, routine uh, totally by accident. He was not um, the, uh, someone who was prone or predisposed to a mindfulness meditation practice, but he got introduced to a couple of people. It piqued his interest, and, and his story follows much like mine. He's just 10 years farther down the road on this than I am. Um, he was eventually able to convince his higher-ups to start a meditation class at his police department, and he now teaches mindfulness meditation and resiliency uh, to cops all around the world. And I had heard of Richard quite some time ago, and I had heard, his name had come up in other people's inspirational list of people. And 
uh, I, I contacted him for an interview long ago, and uh, he said, well, I'm coming down towards your neck of the woods in a couple of months to teach a class. Let's, let's meet in person. And I thought that was fantastic. So uh, I would love to have had this conversation six months ago, but we had a great conversation on the phone uh, when the first time we chatted. We, I think we, think we ended up talking for like an hour and uh, really, uh, I think, are in sync. He's got some ideas that are counterintuitive uh, to the quote-unquote cop mindset. Um, he's critical of Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's ideology, at least parts of it, and that's in, but it's an interesting discussion. Uh, and don't tune it out just because... You love Dave Grossman. I love parts of Dave Grossman, too, but I tend to agree with Richard with what he's saying about um, some of the harm it's doing. Uh, but anyway, it's a long discussion. It goes way, it goes kind of deep into some of that. Um, Richard uh, has got over two decades in law enforcement. He uh, is, has also been uh, he's a, he's, uh, 27 years in the United States Coast Guard, both as an active duty and retired member. He retired in 2015 from the Coast Guard at the rank of commander. Um, he's got quite a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, experience. He was a res- part of the response to deep water, the deep water horizon spill. And, uh, he's been a uh, part of the national incident commands, uh, for the coast guard for quite some time. He, uh, is involved in the Nas- national Institute for, for health. He's an affiliate assistant professor at Pacific university in their graduate school of psychology. Uh, he's an adjunct faculty member at Portland community college at Portland state university, and he's a trainer at the Drucker School of Management at Claremont Graduate University. And like I said before, he trains uh, people all around the world. He completed a year-long mindfulness training program at the Semmel, Semmel Institute uh, at UCLA. And he's a certified mindfulness facilitator. And you obviously don't all have the chance to meet him. I was lucky to do that. Uh, he, it lucked out that he was flying into town. I live right next to the airport. I picked him up. We went to lunch. I uh, had a nice conversation. Then we went into the recording, and I got to spend a lot of time with him. And um, he's got a he's got a, a great presence about him that's just very calming. <laughs> and I wish I wish all lieutenants had that uh, air about him. <laughs> and, uh, and and if I'm ever one, I sure hope that I can uh, that I can pursue the path that Richard. Uh, has already begun, and he's leaving tracks. So without uh, much more rambling from me, here we are with Lieutenant Richard Gerling of the Hillsboro, Oregon Police Department on mindfulness and resilience meditation practices. Lieutenant Richard Gerling, welcome to the squadron. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks, Garrett. It's good to be here with you. It's kind of funny to say that because we've just spent the last two hours. I picked you up at the airport, and then we went and had lunch, and we've been chatting. But for the purposes of this show, anyway, welcome to the squadron. Yeah, thank you. Um, for people who who don't know who you are, uh, I want to preface that um, I've been excited about this conversation we, we, for quite some time. We talked on the phone a couple of months ago, which ended up being like an hour-long conversation, which was fantastic and I thought was really inspiring. And um, digging into your what you've been doing uh, has been really exciting. So I'm looking forward to this. I know it's going to be a great uh, discussion for people. Your website, not your department's website, but your personal website is mindfulbadge.com. And you're on the faculty of engaged mindfulness. So that word mindfulness, that's huge. It was on the cover of Time recently, and you see it on the cover of all these magazines now about mindfulness. It's such a hot topic in the last few years. I don't know if I've ever gotten a good definition of it. What's your definition of mindfulness? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great question to start the conversation, Garrett. You know, um, interestingly enough, I, I don't particularly have my own definition of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I 
I think that the term mindfulness is, it has a lot of connotations. And, um, you know, if you go back to, I think, its strongest root in, in derivation of meaning really is with John Kabat-Zinn and the University of Massachusetts Medical School um, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, when John was there uh, doing work where he developed something called mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, training program for patients in the hospital. And, um, you know, John defines mindfulness, and I won't get this exactly correct, but um, essentially being present in, in the moment, moment by moment, without judgments and it's really that simple Mm -hmm. so um, simply paying attention to the experience that we're having is is I think what we're saying here Mm -hmm. in the context of sort of the tactical or operational environment mindfulness is awareness practice and it's it's really not unlike the concept of flow, the concept of peak performance, of really fully being attuned with your attention to where you are, to what you're experiencing, and to what's arising as a result of where you are and what's experiencing, mm-hmm. or, and what you're experiencing. So um, it's awareness of your thought stream, so the the... the the thoughts in your head, the narrative that's playing out constantly. That monkey mind? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's awareness of the, the emotional component of our being. So it's awareness of the emotions that are arising. And it's awareness of the physical sensations. Those might be in our body. And those physical sensations of uh, the, the data our senses take in. So it's a, you know, maybe said differently, mindfulness is a practice that cultivates inner situational awareness which allows us to have a stronger environmental situational awareness situational awareness obviously that's a that's a that's a key key phrase in law enforcement and it's crucial to our safety and our survival um how does mindfulness or meditation enhance our officer safety out in the street it it really comes down to self-awareness and self-regulation so it's the awareness of what's happening in the moment Mm -hmm. and it's the ability to regulate what's going on inside of you know the human body Mm -hmm. the human mind and mindfulness teaches us how to do that it teaches us how to really awaken to what's going on internally so that we can have a more clear picture of what we're seeing externally so maybe can you can you provide an example maybe from your own experience that might help people understand this if they're having trouble grasping this. Right, right. And this is this is kind of like the the beginning of any conversation around mindfulness and policing where um the term mindfulness is is almost inadequate to explain what we're talking about, mm-hmm. right? It's a term. It's a it's a it's a name, right? It's a noun, mindfulness. Okay. So in the context of police officers and other first responders What I can do, Garrett, is I can train you through mindfulness meditation techniques to be more aware of how stress impacts you. So you're working night shift and, you know, dispatch comes on the radio and they provide you a set of facts and you listen to those facts and you may have 
a stress response based upon the location, based upon the people involved. Maybe it's involving children. Maybe it's a domestic violence and there's a child involved and it's an active fight going on. You're going to have a stress response. Maybe you've been to this house before. And so just being aware of, okay, I can feel my heart rate rise. I can feel sort of this tension come to my body. Mm -hmm. And it's simply the awareness of those things happening and then the self-regulation skills that we teach. So now we can breathe. Really, it's sort of tactical breathing on... Uh, you know, on advanced levels, you can downregulate that stress response. You can have greater access to your sense making of the information that you're getting, and all of that while you're driving, you know, a police car um, to where you need to go, and maybe lights, sirens through traffic, maybe not, you know, Mm -hmm. night shift may not have traffic here. I don't know, (laughs) but um, but you're going to be going, you know, high speed high risk into a situation and the skills that we teach in mindfulness help us to do that with greater skill and sort of churn down the volume if you will on that stress response to churn down the volume of that hyper arousal that occurs naturally just because it's just what's supposed to happen can you go into that a little bit uh, the how how that actually happens how that how that biology functions that we are able to breathe and that thereby then calms us down, slows us down. Slows yeah. Down well, you know, when, when we when we meet a stressful situation, particularly a an acutely um, stressful situation, <clears throat> a critical incident mm-hmm. like I described. Okay, okay, you go into a domestic uh, violence a radio call. Our bodies are you know oversimplified, but we get this dump of neurochemicals in our body because because our, our minds have said you know our amygdala and our prefrontal cortex are saying, hey, get ready, you know. It's this fight response, right? So Mm -hmm. we got to go because we're trained. Okay, we go to the fight, right? So our bodies are conditioning ourselves to be prepared to do that. So we have this neurochemical dump, and a lot of things happen. And uh, the, the, the breath and its relationship to that stress response is really powerful. So one of the reasons that we teach combat breathing, we teach tactical breathing, you know, whether you're on the range or whatever you're doing, you know, one of the common piece of advice instructively or otherwise is breathe right and there's a reason for that because what we've intuitively known for thousands of years and what we know today based on a lot of research in interpersonal neurobiology is that the exhale the out breath down regulates that stress response through something called the vagus nerve so when we breathe out we're stimulating the vagus nerve, which is part of our abdominal uh, ab- abdominal uh, area, uh, what we refer to as the enteric nervous system, this huge series of, of nerves that exist in our gut. And um, the out-breath stimulates the vagus nerve, which begins to downregulate that stress response. And so what that does for us is it actually literally can reduce our heart rate. It can reduce things like tunnel vision and auditory exclusion. Now, those things will still be a part of our stress experience, but they won't be as intense if we're breathing through those things in a way that stimulates that vagus nerve, downregulates that stress response. And what we're doing is we're opening up our capacity for sense-making, decision-making, and physical performance. Mm -hmm. So we're opening up just simply through breathing the opportunities for peak performance. So for someone who might be uh, 
cynical about this. There's a, I think there's a way, to, the way to sell it. I think as you just said is this, might, you know, head on a swivel. That's another common phrase we use in law enforcement, right? That ability to see everything around you and that breathing opens your field of vision that much further for you to be able to see the things, the threats that might be out there for you. And if that's the case, then why not? Why not do it, right? Right, right. And, you know, we also we also know that from teaching mindfulness meditation, we're also honing our other senses. So we're honing our ability to, to see, like in our visual field, to mm-hmm. see things and take in that data. We're honing our capacity to hear things. So there's certain, some of my favorite meditation practices are around sound. What do we hear? You know, and so to focus on sound, to to practice that listening, uh, we also have the ability to feel, right? So we have this tactile sense of touch. And so that sense of touch helps us to, you know, we take in information with our sense of touch. So I, I suspect all of us have been in some kind of environment where we we sort of feel the electricity, right? Maybe it's just before a thunderstorm or something and your body feels that and you can sense that. But we also feel things like humidity and we feel wind moving, you know? And so when our senses are heightened and our capacity to take in data, because that's what we're doing, we're taking in data. You know, for example, I might get out of my radio car and I might close my door quietly because I'm trying to make as little noise as possible, right? Trying to be Mm -hmm. tactical on a call. And just the skin against the metal car, I'm feeling the temperature of the car. No, that's information. No, if it's really cold, that's information. If it's really hot, that's information. If it's wet, again, information. If it's dirty, gritty, whatever, all of that is information. No, it might not have immediate tactical intelligence value, but it's important that oh, I'm feeling that and I'm not stopping and going, oh, my car's cold or hot. I'm just like, making a note, right? I'm taking that information in and it may become important to my sense making and decision making at some point. I don't know, but I'm not unconscious to that experience of closing the door, Mm -hmm. feeling like, and the other feel is feeling the lock mechanism click, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of information that we can take in from our senses and aren't just necessarily what we see, but it's what we see through our skin, through our hearing, uh, through our taste, through other senses that we're blessed with, with this, what I like to refer to as this remarkable human machine that we all walk around with. Mm-hmm. So what does your mindfulness practice look like, your personal practice? Yeah, so, you know, I, uh, I regularly um, have, a, I have a sitting meditation practice, um, although it varies whether it's daily or, or not, whether it's daily or several times a week, just depends on, on the week. But I will do a... Um, a sitting meditation practice where I primarily focus on my breath mm-hmm. and I will do a moving, uh, walking meditation practice outside where I primarily focus on sound. Now I'm not walking around with my eyes closed. I'm walking around with my eyes open, but I'm focusing on sound. I integrate mindfulness practices into fitness rhythms. So, um, running. I'm not a, a huge runner, but I do run a bit. And when I run, uh, part of that run is a practice of just the sensations of touch. So it's, what does it feel like to touch the ground? And I'm one of those weirdos who wears minimalist shoes and, and runs so I can, you know, feel the gravel a little more so than I would if I was in a, you know, traditional pair of running shoes. Um, just feeling the physical experience of running, the discomfort. The, okay. Where does it hurt? Right. Cause 
you know, you're over 40 and things start to hurt. <laughs> um, and I also swim. And so for me, swimming is, it's a beautiful meditation practice of paying attention to the breath as you exhale underwater. Um, there's just the, the whole movement through water. Water is an amazing medium to be in, you know, to practice awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's formal practices, there's informal practices, and I go to retreats. Um, I go to a uh, six-day silent retreat um, at least every other year. Uh, and then in between, I uh, co-facilitate two-and-a-half-day mindfulness retreats regularly throughout the year so that's a good dose of my own practice even though i might be teaching something i Mm -hmm. still get to practice that and i teach workshops so i get formal practice even again even though i'm facilitating something i get a lot of practice formally to sit and meditate for anywhere from 10 to 30 45 minutes you just used a word there that i think it's important for people to understand and it's the word that i keep latching onto when i fail at this is that it's practice right and that this is not performance and it's not perfection it's a practice. Yeah. So for someone who's just wanting to start out or trying to explore this, how, how do you get someone from zero understanding of mindfulness to that first time sitting on the, the pillow or the chair and just taking that first breath? Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Garrett. That's a, that's a great question that has um, – the answer to that I think is pretty important. The first thing I would say is that what I've learned about mindfulness – and again, what I've learned about the awareness practices, which – you know, is another way to frame mindfulness is really simply that all of us know how to do this. So the skills that we teach, the the awareness skills that we teach through meditation are skills that we come to this world in as a human being. And for all kinds of reasons, whether it's trauma or stress or economics or, you know, education or whatever it is, those skills often find their way, uh, into some pattern of erosion, and so we lose we lose our, our skill at paying attention. So fundamentally, we all know how to do this. Fundamentally, we all know how to breathe. Fundamentally, we all know how to pay attention. But we have all these distractions. We had technology. We had job pressures. We had all kinds of things, and then suddenly, you know, paying attention is overwhelming, and we, we find ourselves habituated into patterns of behavior and patterns of thinking that are, in fact, trainable. So first thing I would say is all of us know how to practice mindfulness. We all know how to practice awareness. And so coming back to that, coming back to our breath and our attention to that breath is is not as challenging as, as we might think. Um, you know, I think that there's lots of ways to practice awareness. You know, you have a couple of different schools of thought. You know, Ellen Langer is a psychologist at Harvard university in psychology and she's researched and written quite extensively around mindfulness and sort of her, her camp, her school of thought, if you will. And she might not like it if I call, refer to it that way, but <laughs> she, she believes very strongly mindfulness is a really critically important human skill and, it, and it, it will enhance your life in a lot of different ways. And she also says, you don't need to formally meditate. You have, you know, maybe John Kabat-Zinn over here, not too far away from Harvard at university of Massachusetts medical school who teaches formal meditation and who, although I haven't cornered him on this, I suspect he would probably say, no, you need to have some kind of formal rhythm of meditation practice. And so you kind of have, you know, so what I offer people is not a prescription of this is how, this is what your mindfulness practice should look like, Garrett. It's more like, well, here's, here's a continuum. Here's two schools of thought. And you know what? I frankly think they both have a lot of really good scientific, um, credibility. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's not about who's right or wrong. It's about where do you fit, mm-hmm. right? What works for you and where do you, where do you align along here? Now, having said that, what I like to do with first responders, police officers in particular, is to get them into some kind of intensive experiential training, whether it's a one day, a two day, two and a half day or longer, and let them experience what it is we're talking about. Because you and I can sit here and define it, and mm-hmm. you know we still have listeners who are like, you still haven't defined this for me. I mean, I know that's the, that's the truth, because sure. in part they're correct, and in part it's hard to define, you mm-hmm. know? So, but to really experience what this is all about. Okay. And then from there, people make a choice of, okay, what do I do? Now, if you can't dive into this in a deep way, then there's all kinds of helpful things. There's some helpful apps out there. Headspace is one of my favorites. Um, You can just dive into that app and there's some great sort of instructional tools there. And it's really well done. And I think culturally relevant for a lot of law enforcement officers. Um, But the key here, you know, we're talking about attention. Mindfulness is about cultivating skills of awareness and compassion. And the awareness and compassion skills are the gateway to our performance. Our performance tactically on the job, our performance socially in our lives, whether it's at work or at home, or just simply with ourselves, right? We all have a social relationship, a human relationship with ourselves, and it's really critical. And I think that this idea of, you know, when I combine compassion with awareness, that's when a lot of law enforcement officers look at me and they're kind of, they become skeptical. Like, really, here we go again. The compassion, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the hugabum guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's interesting because there's a lot of really strong science around compassion. And this is where we dive in a little bit to sports psychology. Um, th- there's a few things that what I found mindfulness does for us. Um, Mindfulness training allows us to be present, back to that term, right? To be Mm. present with the thoughts in our head. So scientists tell us that we have, you know, 70,000 plus independent thoughts in our head every day, every 24-hour period, right? And and some parse that out and, you know, say there's 1,000 words a minute or something. And I'm sure all of that's, you know, interesting to play with. But the idea here is that there's a lot of noise in our head. And most of the time, it's not noise that has any particular focus, Right, And most of the time, the noise is relative to what we're experiencing or recently have experienced or have experienced years ago. And yet, we, we're present with that noise often in ways that are really unhealthy. So we wrestle with the judgments that arise because of the noise in our head, the narratives that we're spinning. And we really don't have the skill set to just be there. Right? And mindfulness meditation isn't about clearing our head. It's just about being present with all of that noise, with that monkey mind. And that's really important. So we're teaching that skill, okay? We're also teaching the skill of how to be aware of and how to regulate, not control, but regulate the, our emotional being, the emotions that arise in any given situation, and they do. They arise. And um, we dismiss that. We dismiss this idea that emotions are you know, okay. And I'll tell you, I think one of the greatest disservices we do to ourselves in law enforcement is not really look hard at the science of emotion. You know, emotions are not optional. They're neurobiological. They happen to all of us and they often happen when we don't want them to, you know, so fear might arise, anger might arise. I mean, hell, joy might arise in times where we're like, I don't need that right now. And 
what we often do with those things is we wrestle with them. We fight with them as they're arising. And so we're creating all of this energy, cognitive and emotional and physical, to deal with an emotion that's arising, which is neither harmful nor helpful if we leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And so um, learning how to skillfully just go, oh, anger's arising. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. What else is happening? Oh, I'm feeling tense. I'm going to relax that. I'm going to relax that tension in my body. And we do that with awareness and breath. And then we come back to what we need to spend our attention on, which may be an argument with a colleague or a partner, you Mm -hmm. know, or someone out in the community, Mm -hmm. right? And we don't allow that emotion to become the tail that wags the dog to get in the way of our cognitive decision-making. And anger's with us. Fear's with us. Joy's with us. Disgust is with us. Whatever it might be, it's simply sadness, Whatever. It's with us. It's neither good nor bad. It's just part of the human experience, and it will go away. You know, But we, we have this cultural force that tells us that emotions are somehow weak, and if you experience them, then somehow something's wrong with us. And that is one of the greatest disservices we do to ourselves, because it's not weakness. It's not vulnerability. And in fact, an awareness of the emotions that arise and the capacity to regulate them makes us stronger. Okay? Let's forget the cultural piece. They make us stronger because we can focus our cognitive energies and our physical energies on dealing with the task at hand instead of wrestling quietly in the background, wrestling, not so quietly sometimes, wrestling with that emotion, trying to control it, trying mm-hmm. to compartmentalize it, trying to stuff it down, and then making ourselves less available to be fully present, to take in all the data we talked about from our senses, to make sense of that data, mm-hmm. right? And then to make decisions about what we do. And sometimes that happens in fractions of a second, sure. right? One of the, as you're talking, an example is coming up to me of just the, the traffic stop with the driver who's just being an, <laughs> being an Adam Henry and allowing yourself to let that anger take over. And now you're in an argument with the driver and you're not getting anything accomplished and you're only increasing, increasing, increasing that tension versus acknowledging it and just moving past it. And it seems like you have one of two options if you don't have this awareness training. One is you end up in that argument and someone gets ripped out of their driver's seat and taken to jail and then all sorts of bad stuff can devolve from that. Or you stuff it down, you bottle it up and put a pressure cap on it and it explodes sometime later on in some other way that you have no connection to the fact, right? Um, what got you into this? I mean, have you always been, has, is this something you grew up with? Is it in your training, something that you came to, how did this come to be part of your practice as a police officer and now as a police administrator? Yeah. You know, the, good, good question, Garrett. Thank you for asking that. You know, um, I grew up in a contemplative home. You know, my dad, uh, he had a, a doctorate degree in theology, so we had all kinds of really interesting conversations growing up. Um, I bet. Yeah. And, you know, it's, um, I was an athlete and, you know, as a, as a young kid and, you know, K through 12. And um, for me, I've always been kind of an introvert. I've always been contemplative, like really thinking through things. And I became a police officer. um, And as a a new sergeant, paying attention to how police officers were encountering the public, simple, relatively benign kinds of radio calls where police officers were were behaving kind of like they were 15-year 
veteran, cynical, you know, I mean, everybody was, you know, uh, was an unpleasant human being. Everybody was being judged. And I was, I started paying attention to, wow, what is our attitude towards the public that we serve? And then I started paying attention to my own attitude. And frankly, I left a number of radio calls thinking, you know, I probably could have been kinder, probably could have been less judgmental. And so I started exploring that for myself. And so for me, this is all about a performance game. This is about how do I get more adept, more skillful at showing up, paying attention, taking information, making sense of it, and making the best possible decision with a positive outcome. Not positive outcome, you know, might be any number of things, you know, to include maybe an effective force response. So this isn't about, you know, rainbows and unicorns and hugs. (laughs) This is about fierce compassion as much as it's about you know, just gentle compassion. Mm -hmm. And so I really sought to take a look at this human performance optimization concept with police officers. And I also looked at the culture piece because I was disturbed that, you know, three, four year cops were were acting kind of like they've been around for 15 years. And especially, you know, in a city like I worked in up in, in Oregon, a suburb of Portland, where it was pretty happy, you know, it was a nice community. Um, It wasn't day in, day out, you know, slug through violence. And um, so it really started with uh, human performance. And so I, I, I really started reverse engineering sort of what I refer to then as the effective police citizen encounter. What are the components that go into that? And so I studied elite military performers. I studied elite athletes. Um, you know, I studied psychology and sociology and i found myself increasingly learning that elite performers were moving to you know what we might refer to as kind of mind body science mm-hmm. looking at the relationship with the mind and the body and how we perform and so i studied that and i found out that there were things called yoga and meditation that were regularly being integrated into elite performers training rhythms that totally made sense and um so I explored that. I, I found a relationship with a local yoga studio and a teacher there, a guy named Brant Rogers, was also a certified mindfulness teacher through the University of Massachusetts. And so we started this relationship when we had a handful of cops that I work with go through an eight-week MBSR course, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and all on our own time, our own dime. We all paid for it ourselves, and we kind of went through it. It took about six months for all of us to get through a course, and we sort of reunited and said, okay, what do you all think? And, of course, we didn't want to go through it together, right, because that's too weird. (laughs) So we all went through a different course for the most part. And um, the consensus was, yeah, there's potential here. This could be really helpful. And and all of us found it helpful for ourselves. But, you know, translating that to what does that look like for law enforcement is interesting. And, um, but, you know, so all of us thought, yeah, there's something here. And so I just continued to work with with Brandt and then shortly thereafter – built a relationship with a local university, Pacific University, and the Graduate School of Psychology. And one of the professors there, a guy named Mike Christopher, had been studying mindfulness in a different, a lot of different populations for years, and we got him interested uh, in working with us on researching mindfulness interventions with police officers. And, and we can talk more about that, but um, kind of to circle back to, to the point of your original question is that... Um, you know, I'd spent, uh, I was a police officer um, in the city of Hillsborough in Oregon, and I had spent um, several years on active duty as a Coast Guard officer. I spent a couple of years working in federal law enforcement, and I had a, a, a left active duty as a Coastie, and I stayed in uh, 
I stayed in the reserve, so I had this parallel career. And my work with the Coast Guard was primarily, uh, with, with one exception, is primarily operational law enforcement or search and rescue. So I'd been exposed to a lot of operational uh, stress and trauma, and then in policing, of course, that mm-hmm. you know you get that. And so I had a lot of of my own experience and observations of my own friends and colleagues. And um, what I recognized was that not just do we have a need to enhance performance, but performance was beyond just the outcome of the radio call. It was also the sustainability, the human sustainability of this profession and how we get a law enforcement officer from recruitment through retirement to have this arc of their career that is with 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 trauma and stress um, still can remain healthy and that you know our cultural attitudes aren't simply about surviving our career but Uh thriving through our career even through the really difficult times even through the the very very challenging times which we all experience but to have some period of adjustment and have the skills and the resources we need to not just bounce back but to bounce forward Right, and so I studied this notion of resilience. So for me, mindfulness is about resilience building, and it's about performance. And you can't get to those two things without including this notion of humanity. And so what I found was, the more of a uh, unrealistic, guarded, non-emotional being we are, the less healthy we are. And the more dualistic in our thinking we are, us versus them all the different terms we have for people who are suffering in the world that we deal with, whether they're drug addicts or domestic violence victims or, or thieves or whatever it is, you know, um, all of the, the derogatory terms that we have for them, I think, um, hurt us, but that's a coping mechanism, but I think it's a maladaptive coping mechanism, but, um, realizing that there is humanity here, you know, and approaching this profession with humanity and what I like to refer to as badassery, so said differently, is a very uh, a strong capacity for skillful action. They exist in the same space. They're not mutually exclusive. I can be kind and violent appropriately at the same time in the same space. And one act of kindness doesn't mean that I can't do my job. Someone out there listening, though, is going to think, if I should... He, someone's saying he's advocating that I show all my emotions and wear my emotions on my sleeve during my calls for service or during my shift. And all of the training we go through is don't do that, right? I mean, you are a stone wall of uh, government expertise. You know exactly what to do in any situation, even though that's a lie, and make it up as you go. Uh, but emotion is weakness. So you've touched on, I mean, you've, you've touched on that, but convince. Convince me, convince them, not me, but convince yeah, the person listening yeah, a little bit yeah. that, that you can show emotion on, while you're in uniform or, or you, are you, that, is that not what you're saying? You're saying just work through those things when you're off duty. What, well, what I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying wear your emotions on your sleeve. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's a common term we all, we all say, right? What I am saying is this, is that cultivate the skills of awareness and the skills of self-regulation so that when emotions arise, one, you're aware of them, you're aware of how they impact you, you're aware of how they change how you are showing up, mm-hmm. but two, you're regulating it. And so you're regulating it instead of fighting with it. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's maybe it's more of an Aikido approach of working with the energy of that emotion rather mm-hmm. than fighting with the energy yeah. of that emotion. So in other words, if anger arises, if I show anger, if I bring anger to front and center, like wear it on my sleeve, so to speak, mm-hmm. then anger is going to be the tail that wags the dog. It's, it's going to turn me into a very unpleasant police officer and that encounter I'm having with that driver who won't get out of their car, won't sign their ticket or whatever it is, right. is not going to go very well. Right. right. Yeah. But if, if I realize as, as I'm talking to this driver and let's say they refuse to have a good attitude or they refuse to, in some jurisdictions, sign the citation. Mm-hmm. And I'm realize I have this reaction. I have this stress response. That's both emotional and, 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 and otherwise. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm feeling that I have a choice about how I, deal with that Mm -hmm. i can be reactive with that emotion and just blah (laughs) or i can respond with that emotion regulate it and just let it like okay all right anger yeah that's that's interesting right and have a curiosity about it and not let not get wrapped up in it so really what i'm saying garrett is that we're not walking around as sort of emotional vulnerable people we're walking around as human beings who happen to have mm-hmm. emotion that's part of the makeup of the of being human the makeup mm-hmm. of the neurobiological responses to the world around us and if we learn that it's okay that we're going to have those reactions those reactions of being emotion mm-hmm. and that we can learn to regulate those and we stop this facade or this lie that we tell ourselves that oh i can control that mm-hmm. you know, I don't, uh, bullshit i don't have any I don't have any reaction to that. I don't feel anything from that. You know, I've been mm-hmm. doing this job for 15 years. What's the big deal? Well, we do, mm-hmm. you know, and the the cultural forces tell us not to acknowledge emotion. So what do we do with that? We do a lot of things with that. We spend a fair amount of time um, in conversation with ourselves and others that reinforce this idea that we're controlling emotion and we can compartmentalize it and we don't experience it. Mm -hmm. But we also drink our emotion. I mean, by drink, I mean, abuse alcohol. Mm -hmm. We do other maladaptive behaviors to manage this thing that we're not given permission culturally or by ourselves to admit is normal and it's okay. To oversimplify what the reason mindfulness is so powerful and my training paradigm kind of has three phases. Um, but the reason it's so powerful is because it normalizes so much of what we experience in a law enforcement career or in any first responder career. It's probably true in many parts of the military as well. We're exposed to a lot of human suffering. We're exposed to a lot of administrative suffering. Uh, we see all kinds of things that, um, are very stressful, traumatic, right? So we have this operational stress and trauma and it deeply impacts our health and well-being. And, and and if you look at this, what I refer to this landscape of suffering here among policing in America, um, the data tells us that we're doing a really poor job of regulating this human machine. So one of my favorite researchers, John Violante, out of Buffalo in New York at the university there, has done some studies in, at Buffalo PD. And he did a five-year study. He's now doing a... a more more of a longitudinal study looking at some things. But the data from that study is sobering. Uh, Among other things, he's finding that police officers have the highest 
risk of sudden cardiac death of any profession, any population. Mm-hmm. We have the highest cardiovascular disease profile of any profession. Uh, we are twice as likely to be diagnosed as clinically depressed. And if you look at the rate of clinical depression in the general population right now, that's skyrocketing. But we're we're twice as good at, at that, right? Um, you know, from other studies, John and others have found that when we join this profession, we're essentially giving up at least 10 years of our life, right? Just to be a cop, right? And, you know, so we're not doing well. Suicide rates, um, four times more likely to commit suicide than any other population. And the uh, career points where we're most successful at that is between uh, 15 and 19 years on the job. Mm -hmm. You know, so if we just look at the data, the data tells us that something isn't working very well. Culture plays a big role in that. So what mindfulness does for us is it normalizes trauma and stress. And so you come to a training, Garrett, and a lot of it's just going to be, um, here's what we know about trauma and stress, but you know what, let's just sit here quietly and breathe and focus on your breath for a bit. And what's going to arise is sort of the physical manifestation, the emotional and the, and the mental manifestation of that stress. Because we rarely sit quietly to pay attention to ourselves. And when we do, it's very uncomfortable. So we teach you, one, it's normal to be uncomfortable when we're sitting here meditating, for example. And that we're going to teach skills of self-regulation so that you learn how to be uncomfortable and it no longer is uncomfortable. Then it's just like, oh yeah, that's this thing. Oh yeah, that's the... That's that shooting seven years ago that still is in my head. Okay, that's fine. Still in my body. All right, I still have emotions from it. I still, you know, I go to a, a scene and I smell something and it reminds me of that. And I'm, for a moment, I'm, I'm back there. You know, I have the same flood of emotions, mm-hmm. but it's a totally different scenario. Yeah, you know, we call that normal. And it's okay, right? And when we experience that without the normalization, we often feel like something's wrong with us. So we spend a fair amount of time just getting into the normalcy of the human experience. And and that's the tough part of this job is just that, you know, none of us want to admit that we have all this lingering trauma in our bodies. But the science tells us that's where trauma lives. It lives in our body. And unless we work with it, it's going to stay there. It's going to erupt at times, at the most inconvenient times, and probably have pretty negative outcomes. So we normalize, and then we learn sort of to stabilize. So then we learn the skills of how to be with that noise in your head, how to be with the emotion that arises, how to be with the critical self-judgment that arises, and how to find some compassion for yourself before you can possibly have it for anybody else. And so there's the normalization, the stabilization, and then we get to this optimization phase of, well, now that we've learned these things, and this is constantly practicing these things, now we can move into, well, how is this going to help me perform better? How's this going to help me be a, a better uh, family member, you know, parent, spouse, whatever? How's this going to help me be a better um, elite athlete or, you know, marathon runner or whatever it is I like to do, you know, surfer? And then how's this going to help me be a better law enforcement officer? And so it's sort of this evolution of we first, to get to peak performance, we first have to sort of dive inside to ourselves right? And deal with what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And again, this cultivating this inner situational awareness and the skills to regulate what's happening here allow me to be more adept at meeting the world. With that, with, with that perspective and with the training you've gone through, it's, it's not really a surprise that you're, you've been a vocal critic of Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. 
and his methodologies and his philosophies. And he's been a big guest on the show. Yeah. And we talked yeah. about this before, right. but um, can you explore with us why you think he's leaning in the wrong direction? Well, you know, I think any time that we have simple dogmatic solutions to culture, we have to be very careful. And, you know, I, I understand, you know, there's three kinds of people in the world, sheep, sheep, dogs, and wolves. On one level, I, on one level, I get it. On one level, it's like, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a bravado that has a place. It, and it does have a place. The problem is you have a lot of suffering cops who embrace that as though that is the universal mantra, dogma, philosophy of policing. And that is not healthy. It doesn't take us to a place of community building, of community policing, of all of the things that we want in this democracy to be so divisive and dualistic in our thinking. Um, it's not helpful. And it doesn't address the fundamental causes of performance failure and suffering that we're seeing in law enforcement. And if we want to dive into these fundamental causes, we have to look at what does science tell us? How can science inform us on how we train our people and how we lead our culture? And I think that we're, we're at a tipping point in policing in America where if we don't have the courage to look at some of these things like mindfulness... And as uncomfortable as it is, and trust me, I get it. I've wrestled with this, you know, but I started this journey 14 years ago and, and I wrestled with the same kinds of resistance that I, that I often get from people culturally. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you that um, this is our internal cultural failure of not looking at the world in a broader place. You know, we come to our station you know, our substations, our police precincts and our own house. And, um, there's so much world out there. There's so much knowledge out there that we have to look at. And if we can't find a way to evolve policing, evolve being a warrior to include what science can inform us, uh, surrounding this notion of warrior ethos and performance and humanity, I think we're going to have a lot of external forces start to shape what policing looks like. So let me ask this question then, because so let me back up to stoicism has become a big uh, crutch isn't the right word because that's the wrong word, but um, it's a tool tool. Yeah. Yeah. For me in the last two years yeah. or so where I've dove into Marcus Aurelius and meditations and mm -hmm. Seneca and, and, and really finding a lot of value in those writings that were written hundreds of years ago. And they strike me as being very in line with mindfulness. So mindfulness isn't something that just came up in the seventies. Maybe that's the new term for it, but these are things that were acknowledged way, way back in, in ancient Greek and Roman cultures. Right. So on that though, with the sheepdog and the warrior, um, my question is, so to me, in reading something like Marcus Aurelius and his meditations, you know, he was, he was a wartime Roman emperor and, um, a, a story we've told on this, on this uh, podcast before about King Leonidas at the battle of Thermopylae and, um, also a, a wartime King. They had lots of elements of that mindfulness and detachment 
from the emotion of it. Acknowledging the emotion. I don't mean detachment like they don't exist, pretending it doesn't exist, but acknowledging it, but seeing it for what it is. And that warrior archetype goes back that far. Do you think that the warrior idea, the warrior, again, just the warrior archetype is played out and needs to be done with in police culture? Or is it something that should still be embraced? And if, if, and has it been co-opted, I guess is, is my, it's just no, a two-parter. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, that's, yeah, that's a deep philosophical question. On one that's level. why you're here. <laughs> but, but the practical piece, you know, I'm not a philosopher. Um, yeah, there's, uh, Stoicism really has enriched, you know, my practice of, of, you know, being a human being and being a law enforcement officer and a leader and all that. Um, but here's what I'll say. You know, I think the, the tendency right now is to discard this notion of warrior. And I think that is the single greatest mistake we can make in policing in America today is to rebrand these men and women from warrior to something else, whatever that is. Guardian or Guardian or yeah. whatever. You know, if we study warrior ethos, and this is probably a place where maybe Dave Grossman and I would, would align, because um, I certainly don't dismiss everything he says. He's, he's, he brought a lot of value um, to the military and to law enforcement. But if we, um, if we look at historically where the human being uh, or, or, or where the warrior tradition has been, uh, with, with some exceptions, there is a deeply grounded humanity within warrior ethos. You've described some from sort of the Stoic uh, philosophical era. Um, and I think we could look even closer to home. We could look at, I think, our modern special operations military is a great example. Mm-hmm. And these are... These are men that, um, and increasingly uh, women in certain areas of special operations, these are men and women who are, you know, the epitome of badassery, but also the epitome of humanitarian um, ethos, Mm -hmm. right? And so we don't have to, I guess being a warrior, which means being a skilled tactician to be able to meet violence with violence, and being the humanitarian, which means being a human being who has compassion for themselves and people around them, they're not mutually exclusive. And I think that, in fact, to be a really skilled warrior, you have to be grounded in compassion. And culture and policing, for some reason, has sort of cut out that compassion piece. And in large part, I think, because of trauma, you know, we have... um, we have a huge issue of burnout, right? And, mm-hmm. and we come on board, we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and we have all this capacity for compassion. And because we're not taught how to sustain it, it erodes, and therefore we're like, well, okay, that didn't work, so I'm not going to do that anymore. So now we embrace the the extreme warrior view, believing that compassion is not part of it, when in reality it really is. Mm-hmm. But but that's, I mean, it's an it's a absolute predictable pathway that we've been on. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is I think that, you know, we've... Um, We've not trained well in police. We've not trained well towards sustainable compassion, human sustainability, health and wellness, and uh, warrior ethos in policing. And um, if we would look at what science tells us about peak performance, flow, interpersonal neurobiology, and how compassion fits into that, 
I think we might reassess how we're training. Look at sports psychology now. You know, mindfulness is, has made huge inroads into, into sports psychology. And interestingly enough, you know, in the 70s, the early 70s, Tim Galway was a uh, tennis coach. And he wrote a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. He's subsequently gone on to write a lot of other books and done a lot of performance training for people outside of sports, inside of sports. But he wrote this book, never once mentioned mindfulness, but it's a book about mindfulness. It's a book about dealing with the inner critic, about paying attention to the thoughts in your head. And he was trying to get people to play a better tennis game. Right. So, so yeah, you know, we talk about mindfulness. We talk about like, this is something new. This isn't anything new. This is something that's been around a long time. It's been around ever since the human experience has been around. What we're talking about really is how do we translate these sort of wisdom traditions with the science and train first responders in our conversation, specifically law enforcement officers to be grounded in both skillful action and their humanity. It seems to me that any of that discussion around that warrior identity or that label is, is missing that currently. I mean, the current conversation around it and we are to blame for a lot of this ourselves is that we are not adding that compassion part of it. We are focusing on the aggression part and we've co-opted the warrior to mean pure, pure aggression. And, you know, uh, this is something we talked about once before, but, and I've talked about on the show, but you know, the, the t-shirts with the big Spartan helmets and, and the, the, you know, the stay away from me kind of clothing that we sometimes wear off duty Yeah, yeah. embodies the aggression part of that, but not the compassion part of it. And a book I've, I know he's one of your favorite authors actually, but the book that probably changed my view on policing is the heart and the fist. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought is just an excellent uh, book for any, any officer to read about what a warrior is right you need both you can't you can't have one without the other they don't work that way but you need the heart and the fist yeah and so you know the heart and the fist was written by eric greitens who's a uh, former navy seal um and i mean it's you know we we shouldn't stop there that's even that's the smallest thing he's accomplished in his life at this point you you know governor of missouri (laughs) road um, scholar but but it's an amazing work but you know he gets it he understands that again you know the warrior exists in the space of humanity right um, and, and yeah, we have, we've kind of, again, I think, I think if you look at all the, the data I talked about, sort of the landscape of suffering and all, all, all the, uh, sort of the illness that lives in our bodies, lives in our hearts, lives in our minds as a result of trauma and stress that's unmitigated. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're not going to be in a place where we're going to openly strive to embrace compassion because we're burned out, you know, so it makes sense. So what we have to do is we have to come back to come back to our first responders and say, um, I know this doesn't make sense. I know you're going to resist this, but if you want to be healthy and you want to thrive and maintain the warrior badassery that you need, let's come back over here and get uncomfortable. And then in, in a short space, it'll become less uncomfortable. And over time, it'll become less uncomfortable. And over time, practice, mm-hmm. right? With practice, we'll cultivate the skills that will help us to sustain this thing we call compassion and to be able to bear witness to suffering without being in the middle of our own experience of suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we have, um, much of our training around compassion and policing has, is, is it doesn't resonate with what science tells us today. 
you know, so the difference between compassion and empathy, I don't want cops to be em- embedded in empathy because that, that sucks their energy, right? It takes their emotion and puts, puts them in that place. I want them to be compassionate, which is, yeah, I understand this is a very, very difficult thing for you to go through right now. And I'm here for you. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do everything I can in the course of, you know, this time together to help reduce that suffering, but I'm not going to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, that's tough. It is, it is. So, but these are skills, right? So science tells us that compassion and empathy are skills and we can train to those skills. Mm-hmm. So instead of putting cops in a room and training them saying, Hey, Garrett, be compassionate. When you go out there, I want you to be compassionate. You know, we write it on our cars, we put our mission statements, which is all fine, but we still haven't figured out how to train to compassion, how to train to compassion so you don't get burned out. Well, we know now that mindfulness is a huge training tool to to do that for us. You know, if I could tell you that in, in simply eight weeks of mindfulness training, I can reduce alcohol abuse among police officers. I can reduce anger. I can reduce aggression. Let me just stop right there. Sold. Right? So let me continue. <laughs> okay, this is data from studies in Oregon. I can reduce cortisol levels. All right, so you talk about the neurochemical bath that we get. One of those neurochemicals is cortisol. Mm-hmm. And what happens is cortisol lives in our body, um, often with very, in, in, in police officers, particularly those who, well, we all work shift work to some degree. Um, and it's sort of dysregulated. And inflammation results. Right, And so our bodies, most of us live in this constant state of inflammation. Inflammation causes certain genes that exist in our bodies to express, we call that disease. Um, And if we can help reduce the inflammation in our bodies, we can be healthier. So you can have really fit people who look on the outside, look like they're really healthy, Mm -hmm. but because of trauma and stress, it's unmitigated and, and a lack of good practice skills to thrive. Uh, we often have some of our fittest people also are in, live in inflammation, right? Mm-hmm. But that's happening on the inside. We don't know that's happening. And so unless we get the metrics and go to the doc and you know have the tests and such, um, it's a very, very difficult environment that we work in. And I am absolutely convinced that we have got to train the mind and the body to be healthy. And there are ways to cultivate awareness. There are ways to cultivate mindfulness, which get us to uh, self-awareness, self-regulation, self-compassion, compassion for others, skillful action. The, I think the most effective way that we know and the way that we can most uh, appropriately bring this to law enforcement is through mindfulness meditation. Now, we could all go you know, to parts of China and to, you know, Shaolin temples and become Kung Fu masters. That's probably not realistic. Awesome. But right. Right. Not. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's take a three year sabbatical and, but really it would take a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so realistically, this is very accessible training and relatively quickly we can see quantitative and qualitative results. Um, what are those? Just, just to yeah. convince people, what are they? Well, we, again, again, um, you know, we, we got, um, we get a reduction in alcohol abuse, reduction in anger, reduction in aggression, cortisol, 
reduction in perceptions of operational stress, and redu reductions in perceptions of administrative stress, right? And so we all appreciate that one because, I mean, you know, we, we all go out in the field and work and, and there's stress out there. We come back into our stations and our precincts and, you know, people like me willingly or unwillingly create stress for the men and women who work the front line, right? Mm -hmm. Because of this whole administrative stress, right? The bureaucracy, the who knows what the lieutenant and captain are thinking, all those things, right? right. Some, study, some studies say that's more. There's well, more stress in there in that uh, than there is in the field. The perception, yes. On the perception measures, yes, you're yes. right. Um, on, the, on the biological markers. Um, right, physiologically. Yeah, not, yeah, we're not sure about that one yet. But so, yeah, so we have, again, we have these organizational stressors, which are significant. So we see reduction in, in, in those. We see improvements in sleep management, improvements in pain management. Um, Improved relationships, I imagine, Well, or communication. We're not, we're not measuring that so much, but anecdotally, we do hear um, people come back to us and tell us that, uh, yeah, you know, my, my partner, my spouse, they, um, yeah, they think I'm a nicer person. We'll say, we'll say that pleasantly here <laughs> for your show. Um, but it's much more dramatic than that. <laughs> yes. You know, um, so we do see some positive things and it's just really difficult, you know, to one is difficult to just explain what we're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. We spend a good part of this conversation just trying to define mindfulness. Right. We can give you the textbook definition, but we're still going to go, okay, what, what is that? Right. Why do I care about that? Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here, Garrett, is a a training tool that is simply about learning how to pay attention to what's happening with me, right? So it's a self-awareness training tool. And with awareness and paying attention to what's going on with ourselves, we then start to learn skills to regulate ourselves, And that lends towards a greater capacity to perform the tactical and operational mission with all the skills that we learn, whether it's on the range, in the gym, on the, you know, on the vehicle course, um, in the classroom, we simply have a greater capacity to perform our job in a skillful way. And it's all about coming back to self and, and cultivating this relationship with self. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how do we? Where do you? Where do you want the entire profession to move forward, or even just the individual officer to move forward from here? What's What's the first step? How does someone engage in in that training for yeah. mindfulness? And then, yeah. where do you see law enforcement, or where do you want to see law enforcement in the next five, ten years? What's yeah. your vision for that? Yeah. So let's start with the individual, you know, listener. Um, I would say this is that, uh, remain skeptical if you are, because that's okay. Life is a skeptical journey. Remain curious. So if we can move from skeptical resistance, because we're just going to resist anything we're not comfortable with to a skeptical curiosity, because we're like, I'm, I'm cool. You know, I'm confident enough in what I know and what I've experienced that I'm willing to have a conversation with someone who makes me uncomfortable. That's okay. You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get harmed by that conversation. Mm -hmm. So the, it's the remain curious and, and meet this idea with curiosity. That would be the first thing. Uh, and to explore, just explore this, explore this through maybe the headspace app, uh, explore this through, there's another app out there called lucid, which is more focused on sports 
athletes. Um, also helpful. Uh, 10% happier is, is another podcast slash app that's out there. That's helpful. Those are kind of the three go-to apps that, uh, I think are available. Um, but really to do an assessment of is, is where I'm at adequate, right? And is there something to this thing called interpersonal neurobiology and meditation that could be helpful? And ask questions, talk to people, you know, in your local communities, look for meditation centers, go talk to them, look for float centers, which is another form of float tanks, float tanks. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) go talk to the folks there. You know, I think we probably should have some training before we dive into those because those are pretty intensive sensory deprivation experiences. But, um, you know, just explore this. And I think what we'll see is there's, there's a lot of information out there already. So Mm -hmm. this isn't as, um out of out of field as, as it may first appear so I, I most importantly i want individual law enforcement officers to in whatever way necessary to cultivate self-awareness and be healthy um so take care of their body their mind and their emotional being um professionally uh and, and then as far as training goes you know um you can check out mindfulbadge.com. There's training opportunities there, um, and, and there'll be more growing uh, lists of training opportunities throughout the nation as this gets, um, uh, as this grows. Not just with me, but with other groups doing this. Um, organizationally, I think you know we need a radical shift of a trauma-informed leadership paradigm. I mean, at the end of the day, this is about being trauma-informed. We probably have all heard about how we need to do trauma-informed investigations and be trauma-informed as we meet our communities. The irony is we're not trauma-informed internally. So we know so much about the impact of trauma and stress on the human experience, yet we almost ignore it inside the institutional policing. And so what I want, I want police leaders and I want community leaders to shift our paradigm towards a trauma-informed paradigm so that we can provide the men and women who suit up, lace those boots up, you know, put on their kit every single watch and go out there and risk their lives. The tools they need through skills training to thrive through their career and to be humanitarian warriors. That's a tall tall order among all these municipalities, but I think like we going back to the beginning it's it was on the cover of time recently this is an yeah. a, this is not a new idea but it's taking hold yeah. for the right reasons and for me it's a practice still i still struggle with it i still between shift work and kids and you know i i i go weeks without meditating but i always come back to it right and i certainly always feel better uh, for me, sometimes is journaling is kind of a is a is a middle ground, and it's funny you said swimming because I haven't swam in for in forever. But for a long time, I was into swimming, and I couldn't figure out why I was so relaxed after I left the pool. Um, but I think you hit on something there too with the, the physical sensations, is because you have to focus on your breath. You have no right. <laughs> no right. choice but to focus on your right. breath. Where uh, you mentioned it, but where can people find out more about you? Find out your socials, follow you, and yeah. where are those things? Yeah, well, thank you for that. So, mindfulbadge.com is my website. I have presence on Facebook, same moniker, and Twitter. Um, and I just started Instagram. I don't have a tremendous amount of bandwidth to do a lot of social media stuff, um, but I'm there. 
Uh, my mm-hmm. website has a lot of information and it's continually growing. I, I want to come back to this idea of practice though. You know, um, I don't have a vision that every police officer should meditate. I want to teach you how to meditate, Garrett. I want to deeply teach you the skills of meditation and give you, you know, an intensive several days of meditation practice so that you learn skills that you can take to how you walk from your squad room to your patrol car Mm -hmm. in a mindful way, in a way that's aware. So walking out, this is, this is tactical awareness, but it's really what we're talking about. Mindfulness is you're aware of your body as you move. You're aware of your body as you sit with your posture in a meeting that's stressful and you can breathe and you can go, okay. Or maybe before that really stressful meeting, you know, um, you take two minutes and you take a walk, or if you have an office, you sit in your office, you close the door, and you stand there, get out of the chair, mm-hmm. and you breathe. You're diaphragmatically breathing. You're tactically breathing. So you're downregulating your stress response. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so these the, the concepts, the skills we learn by meditating, can be woven into the rhythms of our life. Mm-hmm. And that's the goal here. Now, maybe that means that some of us need a regular daily meditation practice. Maybe that means that some of us annually go to a three-day retreat. What, whatever, but this isn't about making cops meditate as, well, you must meditate. Mm-hmm. This is about, hey, let me show you what meditation can do for you. And there will be a downstream consequence of skill building that's relative whether or not you choose to develop a meditation practice. You will, however, choose to develop a mindfulness practice, right? So the difference is that all meditation is mindfulness, but not all mindfulness is meditation, hmm. right? Okay. And so it's how you, like for me, um, I'm maybe it's just because I'm old school, but I'm a huge advocate of having my windows at least partly down when I'm in a patrol car because I want to pay attention to the world around me. Mm-hmm. And I'm in Oregon, right? So half the time it's water coming through. <laughs> but I want I want to feel that. I want to feel that water. I want to feel those gusts of wind. I want to hear what's happening out there because inside this container, I, I'm I'm secluded from a lot of good environmental intelligence mm-hmm. right and so um it's uh, it's just an awareness of how i move through the world and when i'm on duty i'm moving through the world in uniform with weapon systems with vehicles um with responsibilities and i can do that with a skill of attention that i can bring with intention to anything that i need to bring into and still have all of the other information coming to me, mm-hmm. my attention might be on a person, might be on driving a car, whatever it might be, but I'm more skilled in that. I'm more skilled in receiving the information because I'm down regulating my stress response through my habits of breathing. Um, I have more cognitive capacity, I have more working memory, mm-hmm. right? And this is what the science is teaching us. Um, this is really exciting stuff. And, um, it's so simple and, and on surface, you know, there's a lot of resistance and skepticism because it's hard to, it's really hard to explain what we mean because we all have some vision of what this is, right? Mm-hmm. Shaved heads, incense, robes. It could be if you want it to be. Fair, rock on. But yeah, none of that. Mm-hmm. Never shaved my head. I have occasionally burned incense at my police department just to mess with people because it's fun. <laughs> but um, you have to have a sense of humor, right? <laughs> yes. But um yeah. Well, maybe uh, I'll close with a story from last night. My my shift last night to drive home this point because I think it and and I don't think it I don't think it was in my head when this was occurring that we were going to be talking today. But to to emphasize too that a practice is okay. There's nothing because there's no perfection. Uh, and I haven't I haven't actually sat on a 
on a, on a pillow and meditated in weeks. It's been a long time. And, um, last night had a, had a, had a contact guy was instantly aggressive, instantly, you know, we're doing this because we're racist. We're doing this because we, uh, we're picking on him. He's a good person. Why aren't we going out catching bad guys, real bad guys, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a mm-hmm. citation for open beer. Right. And the me that would have handled that two years into my career would have been to meet that with equal sarcasm and equal um, attitude and aggression, which wouldn't have solved anything, but it would have also left me after the contact, you know, with a elevated heart rate and holding on to that and giving him the energy. When I meet that anger with anger, or anybody meets that, you know, you're giving them the authority to take your energy. And that sounds bizarre to some people probably, but you're, you're handing over a portion of your cognitive abilities to them. Right. And this is going on last night. And I actually was able to take the moment and think he is angry. Why is he angry? It's not angry at me. It's not me specifically. It's not Garrett to slot that he's angry at. He's maybe angry at the police, but he's scared. He's scared of, Uh, the perception to the people who are walking by that he's being stopped. He's scared of the financial obligation he's going to incur because of this ticket. He's scared for some reasons that were completely legitimate from his perspective, some that were maybe overblown, but it totally informed the rest of our contact with him where I was able to realize he's just scared. And that's why he's lashing out fight or flight. He can't flee because he's surrounded. So he's fighting, you know, He's, he's fighting. He's not fighting physically, but he's fighting verbally and acknowledging that. And then thinking about it last night too, was me catching myself thinking that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago, my ability to recognize that. But I think it's in those practices of acknowledging my thoughts and being able to take a pause between the stimulus and the response that that's getting me not always, not always perfect with it, but is getting me closer to having that, that ability to create space. And I think if we can create space in any situation where we're, where it's possible, we're going to be much more successful as people and we're going to be much happier. No, that's a beautiful example, Gary. And I want to clarify one thing to, to describe neuro, neurologically what occurred there. You know, um, and, and we refer to this sort of, you know, regularly in the training community of mindfulness, we refer to this as, you know, you said it yourself, you, you took a pause. Well, what really is happening is that through these practices – of awareness, sitting meditations, and, 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 and once we get skilled in other kinds of moving meditation that goes through the rhythm of our days, what we're doing is we're rewiring the habituated ways that we think, okay? So rather than literally being a time stop, like you took a pause and thought through this and then came back in, because mm-hmm. tactically we're all going, what? You know, we yeah, can't right. do that. What's happening is that you, you're, you, your practice is allowed your neurological pathways to shift so that instead of being reactive with anger, you have learned to respond. You've learned to take in the situation, to make sense of the data that you're taking in, the environmental intelligence, which is all those things that you've described, and make a decision about how you're going to respond to that as opposed to the habituated reactive behavior that is, you know, 
predictable mm -hmm. uh, in in our profession if we're not training to be responsive mm -hmm. versus reactive so it's not about stopping taking a time out because right. it's all happening it's in all flow, happening as right? it's going right, right. that so, was part of the weirdness when those situations occur is acknowledging that yeah, i am yeah. in the middle i am actually present right. and this is occurring as right. i'm thinking yeah. yeah so back to the definition of mindfulness being present moment to moment without judgment so we're making discernments, but we're not making judgments that are pretty common, that are not helpful, right? And that's really the application tactically of how this is helpful for us, to be in that moment where we have somebody who's really angry at us and we're not caught up in the anger. Because what can happen in those situations, and often does, is that turns into a force response because with the anger also comes some sort of threat acted upon right mm -hmm. and if we're caught up in the anger and the reactivity of the anger we have less cognitive capacity to respond skillfully as we're trained in a force response i don't think there's a much better uh argument for trying mindfulness and meditation than that it can save you it can literally save your career if not your life well i think it can certainly save your life if nothing else over the course of your career mm -hmm. by reducing inflammation right creating mm -hmm. a healthier you yeah. But but tactically, it may give you an edge. Yeah. Richard, thanks for a great conversation. Thank you, Garrett. Appreciate being here. All right. Thanks for listening to The Squad Room. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation with Lieutenant Gerling, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I read all of them, and it really helps us spread the word of the show. I hope, if you got to this point, that you didn't skip through, that you listened all the way through, and that you kept an open mind. Um I am finding more and more, and some of the examples that I used in the show when I was talking to Richard, I am finding more and more that mindfulness is the key to a successful career, uh, both in uniform and out of uniform. And some of those out of uniform things I'm still exploring, and I'm still convincing myself of the importance. But uh, those are for uh, future episodes. To keep up to date, you can text the Squadroom to 44222 to get signed up for our mailing list. That's the Squadroom to 44222. Just do that right from your phone. We don't track your phone number or nothing like that, but you can just get signed up right there if you're not in front of a computer. Uh, also, if you heard something today that you know a friend or a loved one or a partner needs to hear, please tell them about the show. You can go to thesquadroom.net, email this episode directly to them, post it to your Facebook. You can share it on LinkedIn, etc., etc. What you do is when you click on the episode that you like, that you want to share, scroll all the way to the bottom, and all the social media feeds are right there. And again, if you want to support the show uh, through uh, donation to our efforts, patreon.com forward slash the squad room to uh, give a donation in a denomination and frequency of your choice. Uh, Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. -E and again, I want to thank those people today who helped us out, Baxter, Claire Troutman, Kyle Campbell, and um, uh, Redmans, and uh, many, and, and, and even some anonymous ones who didn't want to be named. But thank you all very much. It really means a lot, and it goes uh, a long, long way towards supporting the show. Uh, and I'll, I'll end with this, because we're on a topic of mindfulness and meditation. A couple weeks ago, when we had Traver Bohm on the show, we were talking about meditation, and he brought up a, a, a guy that has been listening to my squad, the Squad Room podcast and had heard about Traver through that and is now following Traver. And if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. It's excellent. It's the eight, eight steps to get through a divorce. But we talked about our mutual, uh, our mutual friend, Josh, who has developed a, a meditation practice. And I asked him, 
uh, or I, I commented that I'd love to hear from Josh about what he's been able to do to achieve his meditation practice. Because today's topic, obviously, been, is a lot about meditation, starting meditation, trying it. And Josh was kind enough to email me back and give me his give me his tips. And uh, I think it's important to note, Josh is in the middle of trying to, to get hired. He's a younger guy. Um, so he's got a lot of stuff on his plate already, but he had a great, he had a great point that he just tried to make it easy and dedicate five minutes a day. And he was shooting for, he went up to, it sounds like he went up to about 20 minutes at a time. Uh, but he found that he was getting the most benefit from about eight to 10 minutes. And I would say I probably get about the same. I'm trying to push it, but I, my practice and it's a practice, not a perfection is so spotty that I can't get 20 minutes very often. But Josh was saying that he tries to go for 8 to 10 minutes a day. He can always find at least 5 minutes. And even if it's rushed, even if it's a cruddy meditation session, he does the 5 minutes just so that he can say he did because he wants to make sure that he doesn't break that streak. He uh, feels that his anxiety levels are uh, much, much lower. He uh, is easier. It's easier for him to fall asleep. He's calmer. Uh, and he says that um, it's just been one of those things that has totally... Um, helped him uh, at this stage in his life. And I, and I agree with that. Uh, so anyway, some tips from a listener on how to do that. Start with five minutes. Just make it five minutes. Commit to five minutes. We all have five minutes we can spare. Turn the TV off a little early and uh, and just give yourself five minutes. Don't put pressure on yourself, but just try to get those five minutes in. All right. If you have any questions, any comments, anything else, any conversations you want to start, Garrett at the squadroom.net, G-A-R-R-E-T-T. And lastly, I want to tell you that this episode is also brought to you by Audible.com with over 180,000 titles in the inventory. If you want to hook up with a free audiobook of your choice and a free uh, month membership of audio of Audible, I'm losing my tongue at this point, you can get your free trial, free 30-day trial, free audiobook of your choice. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash the squadroom to sign up. All right, that's it. I'm done. Till next time, take care of each other. Stay safe.